If you would open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as I said last week, just uh, keep in mind that I'm really not able to do any kind of a review from week to week, even though we are building. Um, and uh, you, every now and then, if you may not uh, be making certain connections, you may have to go back, whether it's on the, online or get a CD, and uh, kind of catch up that way. Um, because there's just a great deal of material that we need to cover so we can really have a good comprehensive understanding of what the scripture says uh, about death and about what happens to us the moment that we die. And then, of course, the idea is to get to the point that we will be able to know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things are true. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you this morning and as we continue our worship, we do pray, Lord, that your word would deeply affect our hearts and our minds. We pray, Lord, that we would think differently because of what your word says. That not only will we think about things or about different things, but the way that we approach issues, the way we approach life, the way we approach questions, we pray that that would be different, that we would have a mind and a heart that is not only influenced by your word, but Lord, that we would be deeply informed by your word, that we would be changed, that we'd be able to reason from the truth of your word. That, Father, we would have confidence, that we would have a sense of assurance that you desire that we have. I pray that our faith would be strengthened. I pray that you would help us, Father, to be able to see, perhaps, if there are times that we are thinking about things, but doing so in a way that is not necessarily biblical, that perhaps we have allowed the world to influence the way we think, maybe even influencing what we presuppose to be true or what maybe we've accepted before as being wise or correct. That, Father, we would always have a desire to submit our minds as well as our hearts, to your word. The Father, again, we would be strengthened. And so we ask that you bless as we continue to work our way through what your word says concerning these most important issues. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, reads, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Quick note, the word sleep is used as a euphemism for the word death. However, in the Bible, sleep is never used for dead unbelievers. It's never used for uh, describing the state of a believer's death. It's only for an an unbeliever's death. It's only used for believers. And so that's important to keep in mind as you read through passages such as that. When we read this, For those who believe in Christ and believe the word of God, it seems, in a sense, fairly straightforward and easy to understand. And so we need to ask ourselves a question. 
Why is there now growing uncertainty about the truth of what is here? I'm not talking about the world. The world's really never believed this anyway. But this is a growing problem within Christianity, primarily within what we might call Western Christianity, America and Europe and Australia and in those types of places. There are modern challenges to what we talked about last week, which was dualism. Can't go back into it. You just have to go back to last week. When it comes to our understanding of the world, the Word of God and scholarship, meaning those who, in this sense, those who have studied the Word of God and accept it, believe that there are basically two books of revelation, that God has revealed himself in two main ways, the Bible and nature. So, before we get into interpretations of biblical teaching, we need, to re, we need to consider the relationship between scripture, philosophy, and science, because all those things can have an effect on how we understand the Bible, maybe even much more than we ever realized. Again, one reason for disagreement about body and soul, that these are two separate but unified things, is that Christians do not relate doctrine and scholarship the same way. We don't always approach philosophy and science from the mindset of what the Bible says. Theologians have long spoken of God's revelation as, again, being two books. There's the book of Scripture, the book of nature. Uh, Sometimes we will use the word special. There's God's special revelation or maybe supernatural revelation. That would be the Bible. That's special because God gave it. It's not something that you understand by just looking at the stars. It's something specific that God has done. It's supernatural revelation given to us directly by God. And that is seen as being separate from general revelation or natural revelation. Uh, The the passage that we're the most familiar with when it comes to that would be Romans chapter 1. The beginning of verse 18, it begins to outline things that man understands about God just based on his observation of nature as opposed to our understanding of salvation in Christ that comes through specific revelation which is the scriptures that's the only way we know about many things that we understand is because God has revealed those things so in modern times whenever you want to say that began some would say that it began modern times began in the 1800s some might want to put the date somewhere in the early 1900s But until modern times, the Bible was regarded, this is by Christians, as being the final authority on everything that it addressed, which included topics that were also studied by philosophy and science. So they never thought that the Bible was a science book, but the belief was that if the Bible touched on science, the Bible was always true and accurate, period. Same thing when it comes to philosophy. So an example of that would be, Uh, for, I guess we would have to say now, many believers, because it's not all believers, but for most believers, when we approach the issue of abortion, we would feel comfortable stating that abortion is always murder. And the reason is not because of science or philosophy, but because the scripture makes it clear that life begins in the womb. And the way that the Bible describes the individual, the person, someone that God knows, in the womb. So it doesn't matter what philosophy says. If some, some secular philosopher says, well, no, that life doesn't begin until the, the fetus takes its first breath. Well, I want to analyze what philosophy says based on what scripture says. I want to submit 
man's philosophy to the authority of the Bible. And I would say, well, what philosophy in this case is saying is incorrect because it disagrees with the Bible. Now, that's important because there are times, maybe it's our kids, may go off to school, and if they're not clear on that, they begin to hear teachers philosophize about a lot of different things. And if we're not used to this idea of submitting all these ideas to what the Scripture says, because what is being pronounced as being, it sounds very authoritative, and it sounds correct, there may be this contradiction between the two, and now the person, whether they want to or not, is going to have to make a choice. You're going to lean one way or the other. Does man's philosophy trump what God has said? Or does what God say trump philosophy? And because in our society, mocking believers and what we believe is a very common thing, that then leads to an individual maybe feeling kind of embarrassed to even admit that, well, I don't really believe this philosopher or the philosophical statements of my professor because I believe the Bible. And so in our society, people have assumed that to make the statement, I believe the Bible, is adolescent. That you are not intellectual. Maybe that you're stupid. Maybe that you're unable to think. And so we now, even if you still believe the Bible, you feel embarrassed by that. And so you may not say anything. Of course, saying something isn't always important. But often what happens is the embarrassment to say something leads to then maybe an embarrassment to think something, which then will lead to us then beginning to think, well, maybe I shouldn't be thinking that at all. So it affects us, affects us very deeply. So these, the way that we think about things and the way we understand the Bible, the way we approach the Bible is very important. So again, until modern times, the Bible or Scripture was regarded as being the final authority on everything uh, that it addressed. And again, that includes those uh, things studied by both philosophy and science. So you may recognize some of these names, whether, you're, whether it's from Augustine all the way through Aquinas to what we call the Protestant Reformers in the 1600s and 1700s. Theology derived from the Bible was considered the queen of sciences, and the conclusions of philosophy and science were read and evaluated through the lenses of interpreted scripture. Right? Now, you may, if you've ever listened to Ravi Zacharias, you will hear him talk about this type of thing. He'll talk about how Harvard and Princeton and Yale, that when those schools were begun, or when they began, they were all theological institutions. And as they studied science and medicine and all those things, the idea behind those universities was that theology was the queen of the sciences, meaning all the other colleges, the college of medicine, the college of philosophy, all those things, all those colleges were united underneath the umbrella of theology, an understanding of what the Bible says. So then under that system then, an individual who's studying law or the individual who studies science, both those studies always come under the authority of Scripture. So if the law uh, department, or if the philosophy department, or the medical department wants to somehow begin to go into the direction of stating that the person in the womb is not a person, so we'll just use the word fetus, the queen of the sciences would say, no, that's inaccurate. This is why that is inaccurate. Well, we no longer really have universities. There's no longer a unity in those diversities. And so now you have 
medicine and their own ethics and philosophy and their own ethics and law and its own ethics apart from the scripture without God and thus we have the mess and the quagmire and the chaos that we live in today. So the Bible really does affect everything. It's very important for us to grasp that and understand that as Christians. We just can't assume, uh, A, that everybody knows that, and we can't even assume at times that we're actually thinking that way because we are greatly influenced by the world in which we live in. And so unless we purposely think about these things and talk about these things, we naturally drift in that direction because we're being bombarded all the time. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 12 tells us to not be conformed to the world. Remember that the world is constantly trying to conform us in its image. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we're all going to be murderous baby killers. But the idea is, is that we put God on the back shelf. Or we put God in, in the uh, closet of myth and opinion. And that's where it needs to remain. Uh, and, and so we are greatly influenced by that. So modern science now, when I say modern, that means moving away from uh, the authority of Scripture. Modern science poses a problem because some of its conclusions seem to conflict with the Bible. Now, it's important for us to use that word seem because there are times it looks like, well, we've got two different things here. Well, we have to continue study and ask questions, but sometimes what would happen, maybe a lot what would happen is people would make assumptions. If science supposedly said something that contradicted the Bible, well, science must be right. That was, that's the general conclusion among many people. Why? Well, because I can see science, I can study science, I can repeat. So we know that science is true. Except one time, remember that most people who went to the hospital died. They had an 80% mortality rate. Because if everything else failed, take out some blood. And if that didn't work, take out some more. And of course, everybody would turn pale and die. And so, but that's what science said. And everybody agreed that what science says is always true. Until someone came along and said, ah, actually, we need blood. And so then things began to change. So remember that science has been wrong many times. Now, Christians have also been wrong many times about things from the Bible, but it's not because the Bible is wrong, it's because we didn't understand it. So we don't get clear because we said, well, you know, the, all these people have been killed in the name of the Bible. Well, Lots of people do lots of things in the name of whatever. It doesn't mean that the Bible was telling them to do that. So we want to make sure that we're clear on these things because the world definitely wants to muddy the categories to make it seem like this is ridiculous and only a moron or an adolescent or a non-thinking person believes this and that if you are advanced or what have you, that you put childish things away, and this would be in that category, and you need to think for yourself. Remember that God wants you to think for yourself as well. And what he says, think for yourself, don't follow the crowd. Oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a book of truth to help you. And so that's, that's the approach that Christians should take. So many Christians, even, and many Christians today, have conceded that the Bible's references to nature are not always uh, truthful. And, and we shouldn't concede that, because that's not true. But then there are those who will say, well, but the Bible was never intended to teach scientific truths. And that's true. But that doesn't mean that when it speaks on science or touches on science that it's wrong. We want to keep those things clear. So what happens is, is you know, all these Christians are trying to figure out, so how do we handle all this? We've got science continues to, to grow and philosophy and, and there's all these competing ideas with the Bible. And I want to believe in God. I want to believe in Jesus. And, and now this seems to be eroding my faith. And so how do I, you know, how do I 
understand these two things. So what Christian thinkers have done in general is this. Number one, there are those who affirm a comprehensive biblical worldview. That means the way we view the Bible is through the lens of the scripture. Um, And so we recognize and we interpret these things in light of the Bible. Uh, There are those who want to confirm that the Bible is comprehensive uh, and that it is is a comprehensive authority uh, on doctrine. They grant the validity of science on empirical matters but they recognize that science is limited. Theology isn't limited, except by our own inability to go places, but science and what science can learn is limited. Science does rest on certain philosophical principles. Science requires interpretation. If you take someone to the Smithsonian Institute and you go to them with all the dinosaur bones, those are dinosaur bones. That's a fact. But the way they interpret the facts and the way we interpret the facts are different. The facts, though, are the same. So when someone says, well, facts are facts, yes, they are. But when they say the facts are that these dinosaurs lived 50 million years ago, okay, that's not a fact. That's still a theory. That's still unproven. And if you just deal with just science by itself, all right, so scientific claims many times may be filled with presuppositions. Things people are presupposed to be true. And sometimes what a person may say is, well, everybody knows dinosaurs lived 50 million years ago. Well, no, actually they don't know that. In fact, I don't know if they really know that at all, much less 50 million people. No, no, they, well, no we don't know that. But you see, all, so we have to pay attention to all those things because all those things are said sometimes with a desire to undermine God. Remember that the Bible tells us this isn't some grand conspiracy. It's the nature of things. Man desires to eliminate God from his thinking. We want to eliminate God from the world. It doesn't even matter to most unbelievers if God even exists or not. We don't like God. We don't want anyone telling us what to do or think or anything. And so we need to paint God in as bad as light as possible. So whether you want to be agnostic, atheistic, or whatever, we want to, we want to eliminate God. So that's why you often hear me saying a lot of disparaging remarks about psychology, When I do that, what I'm speaking of, it would be always secular psychology. Psychology is an attempt by man to resolve, uh, to understand man and and resolve his problems without God. Assuming that God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he doesn't care. Assuming that God has never spoken on these issues and the Bible is just of no help. So that's why psychology is out to lunch and probably still at McDonald's eating all this unhealthy stuff because they don't know what's going on. They refuse to acknowledge God. So all these statements that are being made... Uh, by, by the world is just our statements made in rebellion. So the person may not be thinking, I hate God, but it doesn't matter. It's still a statement that's made in rebellion. And we need to recognize that. So philosophy then is not self-validating, right? It's not conclusive on basic questions of God and human nature and those things. Biblical doctrine in the end definitively answers those questions. However, there are other Christian scholars some who are Christians, some who call themselves Christians, they advocate what's called a complementary view. And this can sound good, but it's not. It's the idea that the scripture and the science do not conflict at all because they address different topics or approach the same topics in different ways. So what they end up saying is that each source of knowledge has its own authority. So the idea then is that science has its own authority, which would not be the Bible. Doctrine has its source of authority, which would be the Bible in this case. 
So the Bible reveals the way of salvation and other truths that are unavailable to reason. I already have a problem with that statement because that somehow is implying that our faith is unreasonable, that you need to be illogical to believe in God. That's not true. But then they'll say that science tells us about the structure and the functions of the natural world. And that's true. It does. So they'll say, thus science cannot contradict Scripture. Why? Because Scripture only talks about salvation and only talks about some other things like that. And Scripture then cannot ever contradict science because Scripture never deals with those issues. So if someone believes in this complementary view, they'll say this. Scripture tells us that God created the world. Science tells us how he did it. And there are a lot of people who will say that. And that can lead to all kinds of problems. just read a book this past week. It's called The End of Christianity. Now, it's supposed to be a book for Christianity, so don't let the title fool you. It started out really good for the first 50 pages. Then it's just off the rails. Uh, and it is horrible. Um, and in the end, uh, I won't go through all the theories because they take a long time and it's just a waste. But in the end, what he ends up kind of validating is this kind of a statement. That God created the world, but not only has God not told us how he did it, he doesn't even hint at it. Therefore, evolution, and what this Christian says is, it's true. And man, he gets into all kind of weird stuff. And in the end, I think, uh, it's a very dangerous position. Uh, and he opens the door to a, lot of, to a lot of dangerous ideas that can really undermine the word of God. Now, he's a professor at a pretty good seminary. Um, and I don't think he teaches too much on this, thank goodness. Uh, but his view is... It may sound really intellectual, but it's off. And so, and again, this can begin to sound true, but it begins to take us in the wrong direction, I think. So then what they would say is if there appears to be a conflict, then one or both sources is going to be reinterpreted to restore a complementary relationship. And so thus, when Darwin came out with this theory, which by the way, he wasn't the first one, but anyway, he's the one credited to the theory of evolution, you began to have individuals who quickly tried to find ways to adapt the scripture to the theory of evolution. And so we have various forms of what we call theistic evolution. And so you, you'll have denominations and seminaries and in some churches that they will teach some form of evolution as the way that God had decided to um, you know, make things happen in Genesis, which really leads to problems when you just read Genesis 1 and 2. Because in the end, it just can't mean what it says. And it, just, it becomes, absolute, uh, I believe, in a sense, ridiculous. So that's, that's the problem. But again, a lot of Christians can get sucked into this, and it leads to an undermining of our faith. Remember that our faith is often going to be undermined in very subtle ways. So when it begins to be undermined when it comes to the book of Genesis, though we may not make the connection immediately, is doubt about what I believe the simple and clear reading of the Bible and a trusting of what the Bible says, that begins to erode. And then when it starts getting into the issue that we're dealing with, what happens when we die? And how do we know? We no longer just take what the Bible says. We begin to doubt what the Bible says. And we begin to go, and, that, and pretty soon, we have even believers who begin to live in fear of death. I don't mean that you're apprehensive. That might be normal. It doesn't mean that we are, uh, you know, we don't have to be anxious to die. That's okay. No, I'm not anxious to die. I want to live as long as I can. However, there's a difference where you have those who are beginning to live in fear and terror of death 
because they're no longer comforted by the Word of God. And it's not because the Word of God is outdated or an adolescent book. It's because the truthfulness of the Word of God has been undermined because of all these things. So we need to, we need to, we need to keep all these things in mind as we, as we think about what the Bible says and our approach to the world and questions and Scripture. So again, what happens is a major reason why traditional dualists hold their position, meaning that we believe that there's a body and there's a soul, is because the Bible presents the soul as being something that can separate from the body and exist. We really do exist. That's We saw that last week as we looked at a passage from Matthew. Those who oppose the body and soul dualism, again, do so because they're persuaded by science, more by science than the Bible. They might concede that the Bible writers did believe in the soul being separable from the body. Uh, and then they'll say, yes, and people in the Bible believed in a flat earth, and on and on. They don't find that to be true, but anyway, they'll throw those things out there. And so they'll say proper authority and relationship between Scripture and modern scholarship uh, is a very significant issue when it comes to this debate. And we need, we need to know where we stand on that. So, that's why. Let me read to you again First Thess- Thessalonians 4. Beginning in verse 17, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we think this is clear. How can others not see the truth of this? It depends on that person's presuppositions. It may not be as clear to them as we think. It's not that the passage is not clear, but there is something that is hindering them from seeing it. Something that is hindering them from seeing its simplicity. Something that is hindering them from seeing its clarity. So what's going on? What is hindering them from this? Well, there's there's a, a physical, spiritual, biblical worldview. The idea is this, a worldview again is an understanding of the reality or of reality as the context of human existence. We're talking about the natural order, the moral order, possible supernatural beings, God, a possible afterlife, and so forth. So the biblical worldview, that means that you begin from the scriptures, that is your foundation, and you reason from the scripture. It's always my launching point. The Bible is always true. It guides my thinking and directs me. It helps me with the questions that I ask. It helps me in evaluating the answers that others give. I always want to go back to this. So the biblical worldview includes more than God plus the physical universe. The scripture distinguishes God from creation absolutely. That's why we don't worship trees. We believe that God worship, that God created the trees, not that God is in the trees. Or that the trees are part of God. No, they are separate from him. He created them. And a biblical worldview views creation as having both natural and supernatural divisions. We believe in what? Angels. We believe that there's a dimension where angels live. I believe that. You know why I believe that? I've never seen an angel. But I believe what the Bible says. And I actually don't think it's irrational to believe in angels. You know, remember, there are those who say, well, if you can't see it, I don't believe it. That's foolish. Not just when it comes to the Bible. There's a lot of things in the world we believe in that we don't see. But nonetheless, angels, demons, invisible powers are all part of the picture. God and angels are spiritual beings with powers of knowledge, agency, and communication. Animals do not have such powers. The biblical view of human nature is cut from the same cloth. 
God made humans from and for the earth, but we are also part of the spiritual realm. That's what makes us, one of the things that makes us unique as people. We are dust and spirit. We are both natural and supernatural, but not divine. Because right? there are those who go the other direction and say, well, yeah, we're divine beings. Well, we're not divine. Spend any time with any other human being, and you'll know that they are not divine. All right, so, uh, of course, they also know that we're not divine either. Uh, however, so natural and supernatural beings, that's what we are. We are a little higher than the animals and a little lower than the angels. So, again, the issue behind the body-soul debate is whether the biblical worldview is still normal for Christians. Because, again, there are those who still have this idea that we're still evolving. Now, that's, that's true or not true. We're not evolving as physical beings, but we are evolving in our knowledge. In other words, we are learning more and more. We, know, we now know more than we did 20 years ago. Mankind knows more than they did 100 years ago. So you can say that we are evolving. But there are those who believe, who don't believe what the Bible says, believes that man is evolving in the sense that because he knows more science, he no longer needs religion because religion is only what? Superstitious, myth, opinion, and it's for the dumb and the uneducated. But that's a, that's, that's a presupposition. That's untrue. But that's the basic approach of our society. And if you think about it, you will hear it every day when you watch TV. You will hear it when you watch the news shows. You will hear it when you watch, whether it's a sitcom or whatever it is. You are going to see it. You're going to hear it. You listen to the radio. You're going to hear that philosophy if you begin to think in those terms. So again, a vast majority of Christian thinkers have affirmed that a physical spiritual universe, they have rejected materialism. But there are some Christians who say, well, Maybe all materialism isn't bad. Maybe we can let some of it begin to kind of come in through the back door. I disagree. Remember, we want to reason from the Bible. That's not narrow-minded. That would be like uh, 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 you going to a, uh, a heart surgeon. Let's say you're seeing two of them at the same time. And they're disagreeing about your condition. And you hear one of them say, look, we both went to school. We know what the textbooks say. We know what all the newest discoveries are. We know that this is the problem and this is the approach. And the other one says, well, I don't know because I've been reading Popular Mechanics and I think they make some good points as well. Okay, I'm going to tend to veer towards the other one. Especially if the, if the guy who's reading Popular Mechanics says, and besides, when I was breaking down my new Corvette uh, and redoing the engine, I just had a few thoughts that said, you know, I think this I think this would apply and be a great thing to add to somebody's chest to help the heart. Okay, there's a thing called research you can do, but you're not going to experiment on me. So what happens, though, is this, this idea that, uh, once again, is for us to proceed from this position that the Bible is my foundation. That's not narrow-minded at all. We're not refusing to think about anything. But we are going to think about it in light of what we know to be true, which would be the normal way to approach things. So the starting point for my thinking, as has always been this way as a Christian, I had to learn this, but the starting point for my thinking is the Scripture and God. And my thinking proceeds from there forward, using the Scripture as a guide and a rule. So then when someone asks me, Bob, what's your opinion of such and such? I always hesitate, because I'm immediately beginning to think, trying to think through whatever it is, even if I only know a little bit of what you're talking about, I'm immediately trying to think it in terms of what does the Bible say? 
I need to do that. That's, and we need to do that as believers. So I'm not going to immediately say what you're saying isn't true or not valid. But I want to go back to what the scripture says. Genesis chapter 2. Turn there for just a moment. I know you're very familiar with this passage. But nonetheless, look at it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 says, And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living being. So very simply, God, uh, this states that God made Adam as a soul or a living being. He formed him from the dust of the ground and he gave him the breath of life. A human does not have a soul but is a soul. That's who we are. I, I, you and I, we are a soul. We have a body. All right? uh, a single being consisting of both formed earth and breath or spirit. A human being is one substance or entity but is constituted of two distinct ingredients, right? Much in the same way that when you bake a cake, you know, you put everything in together. If you make a cake and forget the flour, or forget, I don't know what all you put in a cake, baking soda or whatever, or whatever it is, let's say you leave it out, and then after you bake it, you pour that on. It's just not going to work, all right? It needs to be thoroughly integrated. The difference, though, is, is that with the human being, when the body dies, even though we integrate that way, the soul continues to live because God is the source of life, and that's how he has created us to be. So a human being is one substance or entity constituted of two distinct ingredients or components. So you see, before we can even deal with this question of what happens to us after uh, we die, we have to be clear on that one. Because if you don't understand that or believe that, then you must believe that what? Nothing happens when you die. You just cease to exist. Period. Like when a rose dies, it just wilts away and it ceases to exist. Period. Earth and spirit are, re, are irreducible. Spirit does not come from the earth. The earth is not a form of the spirit. However, earth and spirit are not substances. They are distinct entities that are conjoined to form a complex reality. So it's not like making a sandwich. You make a bologna sandwich with tomato, lettuce, cheese, and mayonnaise. Well, you can take the cheese out. It, they're not, that's not what we're like. All right? We're completely integrated in that way. The power of life and reproduction is shared with other living things, but our personal, our cognitive, moral, and spiritual abilities uh, uniquely image God, because we're made in his image. God combines earthly stuff in bodily form and spiritual power to make living human individuals. That's why a tribe of lions do not have a conference on the morality of eating people. They don't do that. Also, a tribe of lions do not get together and contemplate their own existence. They're they're unable to do that. They don't have that capacity. We do. They don't. So we share certain things with them, but we're different and distinct. Remember that for, I don't want to say every single uh, animal rights group is this way, but I do know we can say that a majority of them, a majority of animal rights groups... And I'm not going to state that what they're doing or not doing is right or wrong. I think conservation should be something that Christians are concerned about. But for many of those groups, their foundation is always anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-Bible. Because their argument is that we should treat animals in a particular way because they're no different from us. And they are. Now, I'm not saying that we should treat animals in an inhumane way, but animals were given to us to serve our needs. 
That does include medical experiments. Our ability to conquer certain diseases is definitely, there's a direct link to what we've been able to do to animals. That's the fact of life. And so what we have to be careful of with that is that, again, many of the animal animal rights groups, if you listen to them, their main point is that there is no difference. We are only a higher evolved animal. That leads to all kinds of problems. They cannot live consistently with that belief, but that's what they're going to shout when they do their things. So again, an anti-Christian rhetoric is everywhere. They themselves might not even know that's what they're doing, but that's exactly what it is if you think of it in terms of what the Bible says. So the entire Old Testament reflects what I just gave you, that we are these things. So I'm going to skip from my notes, and I'm going to read to you from... Psalm 49, verse 15, which reads this, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall re- re- receive me. 1 Samuel 2, 6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Job 19, beginning in verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Isaiah 26, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. When you read these passages and more, if you simply believe the Bible for what it says, it's pretty clear. But there are more and more people in churches, more and more Christians who are being influenced, or when they read these things, just kind of just, it doesn't mean that. It's just kind of generally this or generally that. And we're moving away from what the Word of God intended for us to get from His Scripture. Though, although human life is holistic, again, some kind of dualism is actualized at death. We believe that that person continues to live. Even non-believers are just living in a different place. An essential aspect of living persons survives death, and eventually they are physically resurrected. The Old Testament outlines an intermediate state, meaning uh, where individuals are until the resurrection. The Old Testament clearly teaches that. Remember that by the time Jesus came, there was a huge debate. We also see this in the writings of Paul, where, he, where both Jesus and Paul used this religious debate uh, to their advantage. It was the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed or they emphasized body life in this world. They did not envision a future resurrection or any significant afterlife. Uh, They uh, believed that Sheol or Hades was the final destination of all. So they didn't believe in resurrection. Pharisees did. The Pharisees from the Old Testament uh, uh, believed that disembodied souls or spirits did exist after death. And that the bodily resurrection will occur at the coming of the Messiah. And when you read through the scriptures, you'll see that both Jesus and Paul believed and spoke about a resurrection, about life after death, and used the logic of the, of the Sadducees against them and said, basically told the, told the Sadducees, he says, you don't even, God is not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. You say you believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all dead. Is God the God of the living or the dead? They kind of shut them up real quick because they couldn't go forward because their inconsistencies would be clearly seen. So with that in mind, let me read to you from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, which reads this way. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the same way that a foreigner may be living here, but their citizenship is in Spain. That is their home. They're only here visiting until they go home. As believers, our actual citizenship, we are not citizens of earth. We are citizens of heaven. That that is where our home is, with God. So our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will what? Transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Genesis chapter 1 clearly teaches that God created the world out of nothing. Out of the nothing that he created, there was also dust. He created dust, the earth. He took the earth and then he formed man and he breathed life into this man. This soul became a living being that had a body. You read all the way through the New Testament and what you continually see is that is being presented. And here he tells us as believers... That because of my salvation, because I have now been adopted by God, the curse of sin is removed. And I am a citizen of heaven, not the world of death. And I am waiting for his return. This one who died for me and rose again is going to return. He's going to change my body. Whether I'm alive or dead, my body is going to be changed. And I am going to be conformed to the body that he has. We know all the details of all that. We know some of it, but... We're going to have a body, and it's going to be conformed to the body that he has. And this is going to be done according to, or in light of, or in relation to the power that God has, because God is able to to subdue everything. Meaning, there is no power that exists, no power that we can even imagine, that can thwart or stop what God is doing. If you don't believe in the body and the soul, this then becomes absolutely meaningless. And you are then reduced to a level of having, I believe, you have to believe this is all there is. I do believe you can be a Christian and not believe in dualism. I do believe that if you're a Christian for very long, you will change. If you don't and you want to somehow remain a non-dualist, you're wrong. And you probably have no hope, real hope in Christ. I don't know how you live with that. So what we need to recognize is that there's a lot of attacks against the way we think as Christians. We can think rationally and intellectually and and logically according to what the Word of God says. But like we said last week, it comes back down to where is the Bible in our life? Is the Bible correct without error and authoritative? Or is it just one of many sources? And if it's only one of many sources then we really can't have any confidence in almost anything in being true. And that is to be living very insecurely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and for what it says. And Father, we know that there have been many, many different attacks, many different schemes that have been thought of by the evil one to try to find ways to undermine our faith. And it's gaining traction There are many believers through the years and more today who are having their faith eroded, who are beginning to live in fear, who are beginning to have uh, difficulty uh, facing life and answering questions because their belief and trust in the word of God is eroding. I pray, Lord, that you will 
Help us to have a robust trust in the word. Help us, Father, to recognize that many attacks have come against the Bible through the years, and the Bible has not withstood those attacks by hiding. But, Lord, that each of the challenges has been faced, and the Bible continues to come out to be true and credible and valid on every point. Help us to recognize, Father, that we do stand on truth, that we can know it, that we can believe it, and that we do have, that we are a soul that has a body. And so then, if we are those who are faced with the tragedy of maybe perhaps we've in the past lost a young child or a young grandchild, we know that they are alive with you. And that that is not just some kind of fanciful dream that we have to somehow be used as a narcotic to make us feel better. But Lord, that it is truth. And we can look forward to the day of seeing them again. That Father, we would also be comforted in knowing that when we face our own demise, even the Lord, that that is not something that we want to have happen soon. We do not have to be afraid. That we do know that death is literally the door that we go through at least until the Son of God comes again. It is a door that we will travel through, that we may enter into your immediate presence, and that we will be alive, we will be conscious, and we with others will rejoice in a state of bliss until the day of resurrection. May that, Father, give to us great strength, comfort, and assurance. May we be able to boldly face each day and even the troubles that we encounter. And that this thing would be a a guide to us in our life. That it may be well with our soul. And so, Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we receive from your word. And that even when we think through the philosophies of man and the scrutiny that man wants to put the Bible through, we thank you that truth stands firm and has been given to us in the scripture. We thank you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.